But we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians, and believe it or not, we're beginning chapter 2. So this is good. It only took us 17 messages to get here, but we're here. All, all, all the same. So um, we've been looking at chapter 1, and we saw last week how God destroys human pride. And we just made quickly just three points. We said there in verse 26, he states the fact. In, in verse 26, he said, consider your calling, brothers. And he mentioned how... God does not call those who are wise and powerful and of noble birth. He calls uh, the foolish, the weak, the lowborn, even nothing um, to be something. And so I think it was someone who said about D.L. Moody, um, or actually, I guess D.L. Moody actually said this. He said, Moses spent 40 years thinking he was somebody, 40 years learning he was nobody, and 40 years discovering what God can do with a nobody. <laughs> and see, we're all nobodies in this world. We're all, you know, we're, we're all in need of a Savior. And as we looked at that last week, we realized that God does it that way because he wants to destroy all human pride. He doesn't want to allow anyone to boast. And uh, he wants us all to be equal in God's family. Um, there's, there's not the haves and the haves-nots. And... Um, Verse 31, as we closed out last week's message, we saw where Paul encouraged us, if you're going to boast, what do you boast in? You boast in the Lord. You always boast in the Lord. And uh, so today we're at chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I just want to read our text for us in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And Paul writes, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the power or of the Spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so we want to look at today the glory of preaching Christ crucified. The glory of preaching Christ crucified. You know, we, a lot of times pastors will come up with names for people that do certain things in ministry. And I think if they were going to name Paul anything, they would call him a one-note Johnny. In other words, every time you hear this guy preach, he just preaches the same thing. Um, He was a man of one message, but that message is so crucial. Uh, Whether he was in Thessalonica, whether he was in Athens, or whether he was in Rome, Rome, whenever you heard the apostle Paul preach, he always preached the exact same message, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Over and over and over again. He never strayed from that basic message. Uh, someone once asked the great preacher Charles Spurgeon, many think that he was probably one of the, the greatest preachers since the Apostle Paul in his day. Um, they asked him, Why are all your sermons, they all sound alike? And his response was this That's simple. I take my text wherever I can find it, and then I make a beeline for the cross. And that is so true. See, he and Paul are from the same fabric. And, you know, if a, if a man could come to the end of his ministry and have someone say, he spoke to us only Jesus Christ and him crucified, that ministry would not be in vain. That's what we long for as preachers. It was Dr. Criswell who pointed out that if you, if you want to know about sports, if you want to know about the latest news, if you want to know about politics or anything like that, you can go read a paper. You can go watch a news broadcast. Uh, if it's news or sports or weather that you're looking for, there are plenty of places to go for that kind of message. But if you want to know how to be right with God, he said, if you want to know how to have your sins forgiven, if you want to know how to go to heaven, then you need the message preached by Paul, Jesus Christ, and him crucified. I was just sitting in my office the other day, and I realized, wow, this is the the 21st year that I've been here as 
teaching, pastoring this church. And it's such been a, such a blessing because, you know, there's a lot of uh, stuff out there, a lot of fads, a lot of things that people want to focus on. And I'm so thankful for a church that, that wants to focus on the Word of God, that's not ashamed of the fact that we're a Bible-teaching church. And I feel a lot closer to the, the finish line than I do the beginning point, but at the same point, when you look back over a ministry, not just here, but in youth ministry before that, when you start to count up the different fads that have come across your email, or before you had email, your mail, or your phone as a pastor, list, list some of them. You know, I, I've, I've experienced bus ministry when that was real popular, small group ministry, body life, Bill Gothard seminars, remember those? <laughs> Sharing services the charismatic renewal, the church renewal, church growth, the balanced church, contemporary worship, renewal worship, drama teams, liturgical worship, concerts of prayer, remember those? Prayer and fasting, seeker-sensitive churches. I've experienced things like studies like experiencing God, the prayer of Jabez, the purpose-driven church, or 40 days of purpose, all those things. Not to mention the Puritan revival, the emerging church movement, Christian hedonism, came out of John Piper's teaching, the Gen X worship, and really now today preaching to a, a post-modern mind. Now, you can probably look at all those things and say, well, there's some good in some of those. There is. But they're all fads that have come and gone. I can take you to my library and show you uh, notebooks you know, on the Gothard seminars when that was popular, or on this, or on that, or on certain kinds of worship when that came up. And now they're dusty and yellowed, the paper's yellowed. And, and sooner or later, all those movements are destined to be forgotten. They don't last. The grass withers, the Bible says, the flower fades, but only what? The Word of God lasts forever. And that's why Paul is preaching here to us. And that's why he says there in verse 5 that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men. That's what all that stuff is. It's programs. It's, it's church growth things that people have come up with. He says, don't rest your faith in the wisdom of men, but in God's power. That's what we're called to do as believers. And as a church, I'm so thankful that that's what we focus on. We focus on teaching, expounding the word of God. Believing that that's the only power that can change someone's life. And that's what Paul believed as well. All that comes from man must perish with man. But what comes from God lasts forever. forever. And in this passage, we're going to look at Paul's message. First of all, we see here the content of his message in, in verses 1 and 2. He says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The word testimony of God there, it just simply means that, a testimony, a witness to the work of God. As I looked through his letters, I found that Paul preached only God's revelation. He didn't want to preach his own opinion. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. He says, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. That's what Paul was concerned about, holding to the truth of God. Or in 1 Timothy, we know these verses well, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and then down in verse 13, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Verse 2, through the sincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And then he says in verse 13, until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. This is what Paul wanted Timothy as a young pastor to do, focus on these things. Or in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, Paul writes this. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, 
who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach what? The word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teachings. And then he gives the answer why. Verse 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. You know, each one of us has a ministry that God has gifted us with. It doesn't matter if it's being part of the worship team, if it's Sunday school teacher, if it's helping out in the kitchen, if it's teaching the Word of God. But we all have a ministry. And at the center of that ministry should be God's Word. God's revelation was everywhere, and it was everything. God's and human wisdom is nothing, nothing at all. That's why we don't need it. And so Paul begins here with a negative. Notice he says, you know, I didn't come with lofty speech. I did not come with lofty speech or wisdom. And that really describes the way that they would speak in his day, especially in Corinth. Remember, it was was an important city. You had a lot of people there. And no doubt, daily out in the city courtyard, you would have people standing up and giving speeches. And boy, they would just be eloquent. Their lips would drip honey like every little word would just be perfect. Their tone of voice and the way they looked, it was just a very big deal to them. They were the greatest probably public speakers of their day. And a lot of people came to listen to them. But Paul says, I'm not going to be like them. I don't want to be like them. And sometimes, I think that the reason he's giving all these exhortations, especially to Timothy, is I believe some of the early preachers, the Christian preachers, felt a need somehow to emulate their style. They looked at the Greeks and how that they could speak and draw a crowd, and, and I think some of the pastors maybe looked at that and said, you know what, I'm going to be like them. I can't just always be preaching about the cross or about denying yourself because that's not drawing a crowd. They have a crowd. That's what I want. And so they crafted their sermons into these eloquent, stylized, highly highly polished dissertations, really, that they'd stand up and give to the people. But they were really spiritually empty. And Paul said, that's not the road I'm going to go down. I'm I'm rejecting that completely. Although Paul could have done that. Do you understand that? Paul was no dummy. He was a well-educated rabbi. He knew Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic. No doubt he probably also knew some Latin. He trained at the feet of Gamiel. He could have, you know, held his own in in the argument there. I mean, if, if Paul, if anybody wanted to show off how smart he was, Paul could have done it very easily. But he rejected that. He said, this isn't about me. There have always been preachers who felt the need to copy the ways of the world. That's where all these programs and plans come from a lot of times. They come from people who are trained in what? In marketing. And and all those things. Now we can learn some things from that. But at the same time, we don't want to completely embrace and follow that other than the word of God. I read this past week, one one pastor said this, when you hear a man enamored by worldly wisdom, you say, what a wonderful sermon that was. And when people heard Paul preach, they would walk away and they would say, What a wonderful Savior we have. See, Paul cared not at all about what people thought about him. He didn't care. As long as they heard the message of Christ, he wasn't concerned about his reputation. As long as the gospel was preached clearly, succinctly. And the phrase there, I I decided or consider, means to make a, a conscious choice to do things a certain way. In other words, he looked at the lay of the land and he said, you know what? 
Verse 2, I decided this purposely. He didn't fall into it by chance or by force of habit. Paul preached as he did because he chose to preach that way. And that's what we're all confronted with as preachers of the gospel. It's easy to get sidetracked by good things, even worthwhile things. We can preach about social issues. We can preach about politics. We can preach about the crisis in the Middle East. We can preach about the decline of the family or the decline of marriage. We can preach about all those things. You can talk about Bible prophecy. You can talk about some major doctrines, predestination. You can spend your days arguing about church government. See, there's a place for all those things. Don't get me wrong. But that place is never in the center. That should never be our focus. See, for Paul, his choice was clear. He said, you know what? I'm going to preach one thing. Jesus Christ and what? Him crucified. He started there, and that became the center of his preaching. Once the, 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 the center argument was in place, where everything else kind of revolved around that. But Jesus was always in the middle of all things. And all things had to be properly related to him. We're seeing that even as we go through the study of 2 Samuel on Wednesday nights. We're seeing, boy, there's a, there's, a, there's a direct correlation here. You can see Christ in this text, even, even though it's in the Old Testament. And we're drawing some of those conclusions as we work our way through 2 Samuel on Wednesday nights. I mean, if you had to summarize Paul's preaching with three words, it would be basically this, clarity, simplicity, and boldness. Clarity, simplicity, and boldness. Paul was so clear that no one could miss his message. No one ever walked away from one of Paul's messages and going, man, I wonder what he meant by that. You know, they never persecuted him because they were confused about his message. They knew exactly what he said. And he was simple because he spoke plainly about Jesus Christ about his accomplishment while he was here on earth, about his death on the cross, about his resurrection. And he was bold because he stated that truth over and over and over again. Sometimes, you know, as a preacher or a speaker, you know, you're, you think, wow, um, you know, I run into this sometimes when we go over to, to uh, Brookdale over there on, on Woodside. And we go over there once, a, once or twice a month and we have a little service, just a short service. And sometimes I'll, you know, well, I always bring some kind of a devotion or teaching from God's word. And sometimes I find the music <clears throat> and even our message is sometimes focused on the same thing. <laughs> They're focusing on the life and death and resurrection of Christ and how that relates to us, that we can have forgiveness through them. And sometimes I think, I wonder if they're getting bored. But it doesn't matter because they need to hear Christ and him crucified. He focused on the cross because that was the one part of the Christian message the world could not duplicate. See, we, we need to stop trying to become like the world. <clears throat> Paul understood this. He was a man of one message. He had one track on his mind, and he would not be silent. You know, we can duplicate, the world can duplicate a lot of things, but they can't duplicate the message of Christ in him crucified. You know, when you travel around the country, you see in every town, in every city, there's, you drive into the town and you see a billboard and you have all the service clubs. They have one here in Redwood City, you know, Kiwanis, all the different groups. And a lot of them do a lot of good work for the community. They raise money to alleviate human suffering. They maybe help those who can't help themselves reach out to the homeless, whatever it is. Even the government has a category, 501c3, for organizations that are considered to be public charities. Our churches are, are those, basically. And God blesses all those who serve, and they reach out to those in need. But it's not given to the service clubs to preach Jesus Christ and his, him crucified. That's not their job. It's not the Republicans and the Democrats who think they have everything always all figured out. It's not their job to preach Christ in him crucified. 
They have their politics, and that's their job. You have public schools in every city across this nation. And a lot of them labor valiantly to try to educate our children with limited resources. And frankly, they do the best they can. And God bless them for their efforts. But it's not given to the public school system to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's not their role. That calling is given to only one organization on the face of the earth, the Church of Jesus Christ. That's us. That's what we're called to do. To us and only to us does God give the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's our only message. And the reason why he wants us to tell it is because no one else will. If we don't share the message of Christ and and him crucified, who's going to share it? See, the Greeks loved philosophy. So Paul could have said, you know what, I need to talk like Plato or I need to talk like Socrates and do that in my sermons so that I can relate to them. I want to tie in with the modern day culture, Paul could say. I want to be culturally relevant. And if he did do that, most people wouldn't even blame him, thinking, well, that's a good tactic. Someone said this, no man can give at once the impression that he himself is clever and that Jesus Christ is mighty to save. Let me say that again. No man can give at the same time at once the impression that he himself is clever and that Jesus Christ is mighty to save. You can impress people with your cleverness or you can choose to impress them with Jesus. But you can't do both. You just can't. It's not enough for us to say that Jesus was a great moral teacher. Not that he wasn't, he was. But the world largely believes that already. It's not enough to tell somebody, well, you know, he came down from heaven. Many already believe that. They already understand that. It's not even enough to say that he was born of a virgin. Some people believe that as well. So you have to go all the way. You have to be all in, and you have to declare that God himself came down in earth, to earth in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have to say that, you know what? He died on a cross, that God laid on him our sins. He took our place, dying where we should have died, bearing our punishment, standing as our substitute, taking our sin and its punishment upon himself. He died that he might be our savior and bring us home to God. He was the just dying for the unjust, the good dying for the bad, the righteous dying for the unrighteous, the holy dying for the sinful. And in his death, he won our salvation. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead, proving to everyone that his claims were true. See, that is the message unbelievers need to hear. They don't need to hear how to increase their their net worth. They don't need to hear how to better their marriage. They don't need to hear how to raise better kids. They need to hear the message of the cross. What good would it say to an unbeliever, be nice or try harder or clean yourself up or give some money to the church? That kind of advice is, is harming, it's misleading, it's even dangerous, I would say. Because unbelievers, as we know what Scripture says, can never really be nice or try hard enough or clean themselves up enough apart from the grace of God. And they don't need to give money to the church. They need to be born again. They need to be transformed. They need to come to the cross. If you had to share the gospel in ten words, it's simply this. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. Just state those words. Some people say, well, I don't like to get out there and evangelize because I don't know what to say. Just say Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. Say that together with me. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. It's not that hard. Say it again. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message that will transform the human heart. There's enough truth in those 10 words to save the whole world. That's the heart of the gospel. That's our message. That's what we must preach. That's what Paul is saying here. 
Paul regarded preaching as nothing less than the forceful declaration of God's truth. We're not here to entertain you. I don't really care if I make eye contact with you or not. That's irrelevant. I mean, I know that that's a big thing for some of you. You know, or, oh, you need to step over here more, you know. It, it creates a better ambiance. I don't care. I'm a slave to the text. I just want to communicate to you the truth of the word of God. If I can do that without stammering and stumbling and not making any sense, then I've done my job before God. Now, granted, those things need to be worked on sometimes, right? I mean, there have been some wonderful preachers who really changed the world for Christ. Jonathan Edwards would stand up and he would read his sermons, monotone, and they were long. He would just stand there and read. And the reason he did that is he, he, he wanted to bring no attention to himself whatsoever. I think probably by doing that, he probably did bring a lot of attention to himself. See, Paul regarded preaching as nothing less than the forceful declaration of the truth of God. When someone stands behind this pulpit and preaches, they're not, preaches, they're not sharing. I'm not here to share with you on Sunday morning. Open your Bibles. I'd like to share. No. I'm here to preach the Word of God, the infallible, the inspired Word of God. This isn't a dialogue. It's not a discussion. I mean, some churches have turned it into that. They want, you know, the, the feedback. So, I mean, there's some churches, whether or not, this is crazy. There's some churches, everybody's, they're given like an iPad or iPhone when they walk in the door. And they sit there and throughout the message, there's a screen up. And, and they're saying, oh, you're, hitting, you're missing it, you're missing it. And they go down. It's like, a, it's like a TV show. And that monitors where the pastor goes with the message. By the instant feedback they're getting. From the congregation. I mean, I'd lose my mind if I had to do that. <laughs> Can you imagine? Well, they didn't like that. Well, they didn't like that point. Scratch that for the second service. See, I, this is not a, a discussion here on Sunday mornings. Some churches have made it into that. Uh, when I stand behind the pulpit, I'm not having a dialogue with the congregation. This isn't a, a large group discussion. If you want to discuss something, let's go out for coffee. We'll go to McDonald's. We can discuss lots of things. That's fine. But this is not the place for that. This is a place where the preacher declares the word of God. And it's not because preaching is not dialogue because God is not negotiating with you. <laughs> He's not negotiating with the human race. What does he do? He has declared the terms of salvation. They're already declared. You don't get to pick and choose. And you know what? Those terms could not have been better because they're free. <laughs> they're free. Salvation is free for the asking. But the terms of salvation are based on the death of his son. And so let's make a commitment to be gospel-centered in all that we do because we have no other message. And if we substitute anything for the message of the cross, we have taken away the one message that the world needs to hear. You know, sometimes I'm amazed. I'll listen to programs on the radio even, and I hear the preacher preaching, and it's almost like they're preaching to a, a laugh track. You hear her. I mean, the congregation is just laughing the whole time, and they're just really, it's really distracting. Now, I'm not saying we have to sit here as, you know, good little students and, and not say a word. I mean, I'm, I'm open for a good amen now and then. That's good. It shows you're, you're tracking with me. But at the same time, we want to do things decently and in order. And, you know, this isn't a place where, you know, the pastor's the comedian now, you know, a good laugh now and then doesn't hurt anybody. Um, sometimes people laugh, and I don't know why they're laughing. That's really disconcerting. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, what did I just say? But anyway, um, see, Paul's approach was this, is that, you know, when, when, he, when they heard him preach, he didn't 
preach for their applause. He preached for the souls of men. He was concerned with one thing. To give people what they need, sometimes you have to not give them what they want. Think about that. To give people what they need, sometimes you have to not give them what they want. I mean, if you've raised any of your children at all, if you have a child, you know what that's like. When your child's sick and they want another cookie or an ice cream, maybe they need the medicine that the doctor prescribed for them more than the ice cream. So what do you do? Do you give them what they want or do you give them what they need? The same is true as we speak to others about Christ. They may not want to hear other things, but we must tell them about Jesus for he alone can save them. That was Paul's message, the content of his message. God's revelation was everything. Human wisdom was nothing. Well, secondly, we look at Paul's method in verses 3 and 4. He says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not with plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. We see Paul's person here. He was weak. The word means physical illness. There was something wrong with him. doesn't really tell us what it was. A lot of people speculated, but we don't know. It also speaks here of a, he was there with fear. Phobo, you know, when you have a, 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 you're scared of something, they use the word phobo. It means fear. Well, this is speaking of the fear of God. It's not speaking he was intimidated by the people he was speaking of. However, at times when he was speaking in certain circumstances and they were about ready to attack him, I'd probably be fearful. But he was fearful of God. And then thirdly, it talks about trembling. And that really speaks of the awe of God. The awe of God. Like he couldn't believe that he was there giving this message that God wanted him to have. And then you look at the message that he proclaimed Three points there. It wasn't the words of of human wisdom. He wasn't interested in sharing what they wanted to hear. But he was interested in demonstrating the Spirit of God. In other words, he he wanted the Spirit of God to work through him in such a way that people would go, wow, what an incredible God we have. He wasn't concerned about them sitting there going, wow, he's such an eloquent speaker. Oh, he looks so nice too. He's always smiling. He's always smiling. And then he also wanted to see that his message is to demonstrate the power of God. You know, this is, you might call this Paul's evangelistic plan. It's it's fear and trembling. Can you relate to that? Have you ever gone outside of these four walls and tried to evangelize? You probably understand fear and trembling, right? It's kind of a disconcerting thing to do. You go out there and you don't know what you're going to say. You don't know who you're going to run into. You don't know if somebody's going to attack you or, or, or make fun of you. Evangelism is something that is, is not done enough because of that very thing. It's, 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 it's fearful. But we should be a lot more fearful and trembling before God if we don't do it, is Paul's point. Paul has in mind the reception. We can, you can read about it on your own in Acts 18 when he went to Corinth. They didn't welcome him with open arms when he went there and established this church. At one point, if you look at verses uh, 9 to 11 in Acts 18, he felt so abandoned and alone that the Lord had to come to him personally in a vision to encourage his heart. Here's what the Lord said in verse 9 of chapter 18 of Acts. It says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, which indicates he was afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. See, Corinth was a hard enough city to begin with to go and share the message. It would be like saying, hey, let's go down to downtown San Francisco there and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll start having a little rally. We'll do some evangelism down there. You know, I don't think I'd get a lot of people signed up for something like that. Why? That'd be very intimidating. Because you're not going to be received well in that environment. And so it discouraged him to the point that preaching was difficult. Maybe he had some inner doubts or maybe he faced some uncertainty. This isn't a picture of this self-confident, incredible man of intellect that could 
really, really preach. He needed some self-assurance. And he responded in a totally human fashion. That's encouraging to us. This is the Apostle Paul. And he was discouraged at times. He was fearful at times. Or have you ever tried to, maybe you're thinking, you got really, your boldness got up to over the edge and you thought, okay, I'm going to really share the word of God with them. You know, I'll just, I'll just share John 3.16. You know, well, the Bible says, for God, uh, and you just, you forgot the whole verse. Something as simple as that. It happens to all of us. I'm never going to do that again. See, we've all been in that kind of a disastrous witnessing situation where the experience was not pleasant for us. Maybe it wasn't well received. Paul knew what that was like. Sometimes people say, do you get nervous? Do you get scared before you get up to preach? I said, every Sunday. Every Sunday. There's not a Sunday that goes by. I'm not up here going, God, please somehow just make this happen. Because you know what? It's, it's not something that you should do on autopilot. Um, there's always a sense of nervousness. There's always a sense, because you don't want to say something that's stupid to embarrass yourself. You don't want to say something that's even stupider that would maybe, you know, embarrass the Lord and his word. If it becomes routine for you to teach the word of God, you really got a problem. You really need to look at your heart, because there's nothing routine about it ever. You need that kind of holy nervousness, I call it. You know, you need to be on edge, and you need to be that, that same kind of mentality when you're out there witnessing. Because you're, you're what? As we said last week, you're representing the church of Christ. You're representing the bride when you go out of these four walls. What are they seeing? So he was a man. Paul was a man just like this, like us. And he could just say, you know what? It's only God that made this happen. Um, one commentary tells us that the New Testament doesn't give us any descriptions of Paul. You know, we don't have any pictures, obviously. But but he's quoted in 2 Corinthians 10.10. It says, For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak. Paul's bodily presence is weak. And they said his speech... Of no account. Second Corinthians ten ten. Uh, there is an early description of Paul outside of the New Testament. It says this: He was a man of middling size, and his hair was scanty, and his legs were a little crooked, and his knees were far apart. <laughs> Bow legged, apparently. He had large eyes, and his eyebrows met in the middle. So he had a unibrow going across his forehead. And then it says this, and his nose was somewhat long. <laughs> I mean, if that's accurate, that's not a pretty picture. We're not, you know, we're not talking model material here. He wasn't much to look at. I mean, can you imagine people sitting there in Corinth as he gets up to preach? Hey, who's preaching today? Paul. Oh. Seriously? Paul again? I invited my neighbors to church. Gosh, I thought Dr. Mr. Smarty Pants was preaching. I was hoping they could hear him instead, but now we got to listen to Paul again. He preaches the same thing all the time. His sermons are long, too. I mean, I'm sure that they had those feelings. So if you feel a bit afraid or unqualified to be a witness for Christ, you're in good company. Join the club. We all are. Um, there's plenty of people, and Paul is the president. Um, If people are impressed by what you say, hear me on this, unlikely, they'll they'll, they'll be unlikely impressed by Jesus. If people are impressed by what you say, it's unlikely that they will be impressed by Jesus. I mean, it's very easy to manipulate people, is it not? You can tell them funny stories, you can tell them sad stories, you can use certain kinds of music to get the mood going. You see this all the time. But manipulation and the power of the Holy Spirit are two different things. We've all been in 
services. Maybe at the end of the service, the pastor gives an invitation, and they play just as I am, and you know nobody comes, so they play it again, and then they play it a third time. Finally, some soul comes down just to maybe end the service. I mean, that's how it works in some churches. That's called manipulation. We need the unction of the Holy Spirit that will take our feeble human words and fill them with supernatural power. That's what Paul was about. That's what his method was about. It wasn't about his oratory style. It wasn't about how well he spoke. He wanted the form of his message to be filled with the power of the Spirit and the power of God. We'll look at thirdly here, his motive in verse 5. It says, why does he do this? Paul does this, that your faith might not rest in human wisdom, or the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The reason he did this, the reason he preached the way he preached, he draws a striking line between the wisdom of men and the power of God. If you build on one, you can't have the other. That's the way it, it, it operates. Ministries that are built primarily on a human personality do not last. I've seen this time and time again. First church I was involved in as a youth pastor. I worked with a dear man for about two and a half years, and he resigned, left, and they called the new pastor. And the new pastor came in, and I remember sitting in, I was just the youth pastor, associate pastor, and we had no pastor, so I was trying to fill in the best I could. But I remember sitting in the board meeting, they were all deacons, it was a Baptist church, and they said, well, we got this guy that's going to come and, and hopefully be our pastor, we're going to interview him. We want you to be part of that. So I said, all right. So I sat there, and I remember this pastor sitting there, and boy, he, he was a real um, smoothie kind of guy. You know, as he sat there, you could just see where the church would grow if he came, just around his personality. He's a real, real fun guy to work for, actually. And I remember him going through the interview process, and at one point he's saying, and we got this great youth pastor I'll bring up. And I'm sitting there going, oh, boy, I guess I'm done. And the board of directors said, well, no, no, Steve's our youth pastor. Remember, you just met him. Oh, yeah, 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 okay, okay. You know, and I thought, wow, you know, I was too naive to see the writing on the roll wall, apparently. So uh, to make a long story short, that pastor did come. As a matter of fact, the, pastor, the, the church did grow. It grew quite a bit. And it was all around his personality. He knew how to manipulate people. He knew how to, to work that. And after he let me go, and then the church told him they couldn't afford to bring on the youth pastor that he wanted because he didn't get his way, he left. And I remember looking at his resume when he first submitted it, and I said, you know, he's only been in a church at the most 24 months, any church. And his claim was, yeah, I go and I, I help him grow, and then I move on. That was his thing, you know. But, you know, he's a neat guy. But sure enough, you know, I was no longer at that church, but that church literally died. First Baptist Church of Fremont does not exist anymore. Another church took it over, and it's very unfortunate. Why? Because it was built around an individual's personality. That's not the way to build a church. Um, we all have our favorite pastors or whatever we listen to on the radio, you know, what, MacArthur, Piper, whoever, Stanley, whatever, you know, Robbie Zachariah, you have all these names. And sometimes it's, it's funny because you, you know, you go to a conference and you say, well, where, where do you, you know, go to church at? Or, you know, oh I, oh, I go to John MacArthur's church. Or I go to Andy Stanley's church. Or I go, to, you know, and it's like, wow, that's weird. That's just so foreign to me. Like, please never, ever say that. Or I go to Steve Converse's church. Please don't ever say that. This is not my church. It's not our church. It's Christ's church. And by the way, the teachers don't, you know, I'm sure MacArthur would share that same, he wouldn't want that, them to say that either. But that's how we think. You know, we, we think this, this, we're more interested in popularity and, and that kind of thing than we are in godliness in our leaders. So we, we follow celebrities and uh, we need faith built upon the unchanging rock of God's truth. Um, because you know what? All those guys, all those wonderful teachers that we most likely respect and listen to a lot, they're all going to die. One day they're going to be dead. And, you know, someone else will come in and pastor their church. And, it, it, you know, it'll, it'll go on just fine. 
because it is Christ's church. And so Paul clearly says here, look, my message isn't based on human wisdom. I don't want you to, to base your faith in human wisdom. I want it to be rested in the power of God. So while it's good, it's even <clears throat> vital to have and love and respect spiritual leaders, you don't build your whole spiritual life around them. I often tell people, if, if the only thing you're doing spiritually is coming to church on Sunday and listening to somebody preach, you're not doing enough. I don't care who the preacher is. That's not enough. You need to be a Berean. You need to be in God's word each and every day and mining it out for yourself. You need to build your life on Jesus Christ because he's going to be there long after the pastors have come and gone. Um, Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, The power that is in the gospel does not lie in eloquence of the preacher. Otherwise, men would be converters of souls. Nor does it lie in the preacher's learning. Otherwise, it would consist of the wisdom of men. We might preach until our tongues rotted, till we would exhaust our lungs and die, but never a soul would be converted unless the Holy Spirit be the word of God to give it in the power to a converted to a, to a convert to convert a soul. And that is so true. We have to rely on the Spirit's power. And that was Paul's strategy. Preach the word accurately. Pray for the power of God to bless the word. Trust God that it will somehow change the lives as a result. And that's what we have to do each and every day. Because only God can take a person who's trapped in their sin and set them free. Only God can do that. Only God can take a person chained to alcohol and set them free. Or drug abuse or whatever it might be. Only God can take a person who's living in the hell of sexual addiction and set them free. Only God can do those things. The Bible says only God can take a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Only he can give life in the place of death. And he does it as we faithfully preach the message of the cross. So yes, we will continue to focus on the cross. We will continue to lift up the cross of Christ. Because that's the only foundation we have. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Build your life on that solid rock. Stand on that rock and he will take you home to heaven. Billy Graham tells the story of a police officer. He's on night duty and he ran into this young boy walking the streets in northern England. And the boy was cold. He was sobbing. Shining his flashlight. He waved the, the boy over, and they, they met on the doorstep of this house, and his tears were just running down his cheeks of this little child. And the child told the police officer, I'm lost, please take me home. Hey, I'd be glad to take you home. Where do you live? <laughs> but the little boy was so tired and so scared he couldn't remember his address. And the policeman began naming street after street, and they went through this whole thing and trying to help the boy remember where he lived and he named the shops the hotels in the area he just the little boy didn't have a clue and then he remembered at the center of the town stood a church with a large white cross that towered high above the rest of the city the policeman pointed to the cross and said do you live anywhere near that place and the little boy's face lit up and he said, yes, sir, take me to that cross and I can find my way home. That's so true. We need to take people to the cross. That's the mission of the church. We're to point people to the cross and the cross will lead them home to God. I pray that our lives will emulate that, that when we go out into this lost and dying world that we will have the message of the cross, the message of God's love and forgiveness on our tongues. Because it's the only message there is that saves the human heart. It's a unique message to the church. It's not given to anyone else to share but us. And in a world of hurting people, 
to those who were angry, to those who may be in despair, to those who've lost their way, to every man, every woman, every boy, every girl. The church of Jesus Christ says to everyone who will listen, go to the cross, and the cross will lead you home. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that Paul was a bold preacher of Christ and him crucified. And we're going to find out next week that it's through the Spirit's power that this message is conveyed to the unconverted soul. It's not through our wisdom. It's not through our eloquence. It's through God's power. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that you would minister your grace to each heart that's here. That, Father, in a way that only you can, that you would show each soul that's in this place today. Each soul is so important to you. You created them. And you created them to have a relationship with you. But because of our sin, that relationship was broken. It's severed. And it needs to be reconciled. It needs to be healed. And the only way that that can be healed is when that sinner turns from their sin and turns to the Savior. And we confess our sin. We say the same thing about our sin that you say, that it's wrong, that it's displeasing to you, that it needs to be forgiven. And we consent that the only place that forgiveness lies is at the cross. If you're here this morning and you've yet to put your faith, your trust in Christ, I pray that you would look to Christ, you would look to the cross, that you would cry out from the depths of your heart, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. I don't know what else to say. Save me, Lord. Be merciful to me. That's a prayer when it's prayed from a sincere heart that God will answer and God will transform you. And you will feel his love and his compassion and his forgiveness shower down upon your soul. Lord, we thank you. We pray as believers as we go out into this lost and dying world that we would have boldness as we share the cross of Christ and him crucified. We pray that our lives would be filled with the message of love and grace, that people would want to know what makes the difference, what has made the difference in our lives, and we can point them to the cross. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.